Hello and welcome. I'm Jennifer March, and this is not your mother story time. This week, in our continuing tribute to Black History Month, we bring you two stories by Paul Lawrence Dunbar, The Lynching of Jube Benson, and The Mission of Mr. Scatters. Dunbar was the husband of last week's author, Alice Dunbar Nelson, until he died in 1906 of tuberculosis. Born to former slaves in Dayton, Ohio, where he was boyhood friends with the Wright brothers, Paul Lawrence Dunbar is best remembered for lines from Sympathy that became the title of Maya Angelou's famous autobiography, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. Frederick Douglass called him the most promising young colored man in America. However, he became one of the first African-American writers to establish an international reputation. Much of his work is written in dialect, which brought a mix of criticism and praise. Some said the use of dialect fostered stereotypes of blacks as comical or pathetic. Others said he was the first to rise to a height from which he could take a perspective view of his own race. He was the first to see objectively its humor, its superstitions, its shortcomings. The first to feel sympathetically its heart wounds, its yearnings, its aspirations, and to voice them all in a purely literary form. So, is it stereotypical or sympathetic? I will read these stories. You be the judge. And now, The Lynching of Jube Benson. Gordon Fairfax's library held but three men, but the air was dense with clouds of smoke. The talk had drifted from one topic to another, much as the smoke wreaths had puffed, floated, and thinned away. Then Handon Gay, who was an ambitious young reporter, spoke of a lynching story in a recent magazine, and the matter of punishment without trial put new life into the conversation. "'I should like to see a real lynching,' said Gay rather callously. Well, I should hardly express it that way, said Fairfax. But if a real live lynching were to come my way, I shouldn't avoid it. I should, spoke the other from the depths of his chair, where he had been puffing in moody silence. Judged by his hair, which was freely sprinkled with gray, the speaker might have been a man of forty-five or fifty, but his face, though lined and serious, was youthful the face of a man hardly past thirty. What, you, Dr. Melville? Why, I thought that you physicians wouldn't weaken at anything. I have seen one such affair, said the doctor gravely. In fact, I took a prominent part in it. Tell us about it, said the reporter, feeling for his pencil and notebook, which he was nevertheless careful to hide from the speaker. The men drew their chairs eagerly up to the doctors, but for a moment he did not seem to see them, but sat gazing abstractedly into the fire. Then he took a long draw upon his cigar and began. I can see it all very vividly now. It was in the summertime and about seven years ago. I was practicing at the time down in the little town of Bradford. It was a small and primitive place, just the location for an impecunious medical man recently out of college. In lieu of a regular office, I attended to business in the first of two rooms which I rented from Hiram Daly, one of the more prosperous of townsmen. 
Here I boarded, and here also came my patients, white and black, whites from every section, and blacks from Niggertown, as the west portion of the place was called. The people about me were most of them coarse and rough, but they were simple and generous, and as time passed on I had about abandoned my intention of seeking distinction in wider fields and determined to settle into the place of a modest country doctor. This was rather a strange conclusion for a young man to arrive at, and I will not deny that the presence in the house of my host's beautiful young daughter, Annie, had something to do with my decision. She was a beautiful young girl of seventeen or eighteen, and very far superior to her surroundings. She had a native grace and a pleasing way about her that made everybody that came under her spell her abject slave. White and black who knew her loved her, and none, I thought, more deeply and respectfully than Jube Benson, the black man of all work about the place. He was a fellow whom everybody trusted, an apparently steady-going, grinning sort, as we used to call him. Well, he was completely under Miss Annie's thumb and would fetch and carry for her like a faithful dog. As soon as he saw that I began to care for Annie, and anybody could see that, he transferred some of his allegiance to me and became my faithful servitor also. Never did a man have a more devoted adherent in his wooing than I did, and many a one of Annie's tasks which he volunteered to do gave her an extra hour with me. You can imagine that I liked the boy, and you need not wonder any more that, as both wooing and my practice waxed apace, I was content to give up my great ambitions and stay just where I was. It wasn't a very pleasant thing, then, to have an epidemic of typhoid break out in the town that kept me going so that I hardly had time for the courting that a fellow wants to carry on with his sweetheart while he is still young enough to call her his girl. I fumed, but duty was duty, and I kept to my work night and day. It was now that Jube proved how invaluable he was as a co-adjutor. He not only took messages to Annie, but brought sometimes little ones from her to me, and he would tell me little secret things that he had overheard her say that made me throb with joy and swear at him for repeating his mistress's conversation. Best of all, Jube was a perfect Cerberus, and no one on earth could have been more effective in keeping away or deluding the other young fellows who visited the dailies. He would tell me of it afterwards, chuckling softly to himself. And, Doctor, I say to Mr. Hemp Stevens, excuse us, Mr. Stevens, but Miss Annie, she just gone out. And then he go out of the gate looking mighty lonesome. When Sam Elkins come, I say, Shh, Mr. Elkins, Miss Annie, she done took down. And he say, what, Jube, you don't reckon it to... Then he stop, and he look scared, and I say, I feared it is, Mr. Elkins, and shakes my head is solemn. He goes out of the gate looking like his best friend done died, and all the time Miss Annie behind them curtains over the porch, dis a laughing fit to kill. Jube was a most admirable liar. But what could I do? He knew that I was a young fool of a hypocrite, and when I would rebuke him for these deceptions, he would give way and roll on the floor in an excess of delighted laughter, until from very contagion I had to join him. 
and while there was no need of my preaching when there had been no beginning to his repentance, and when there must ensue a continuance of his wrongdoing. This went on for over three months, and then, poof, I was down like a shot. My patients were nearly all up, but the reaction from overwork made me an easy victim of the lurking germs. Then Jube loomed up as a nurse. He put everyone else aside, and with the doctor, a friend of mine from a neighboring town, took entire charge of me. Even Annie herself was put aside, and I was cared for as tenderly as a baby. Tom, that was my physician and friend, told me about it afterward with tears in his eyes. Only he was a big, blunt man, and his expressions did not convey all that he meant. He told me how my nigger had nursed me as if I were a sick kitten, and he my mother, of how fiercely he guarded his right to be the sole one to do for me, as he called it, and how when the crisis came he hovered, weeping, but hopeful, at my bedside, until it was safely passed, when they drove him weakly and exhausted from my room. As for me, I knew little about it at the time and cared less. I was too busy in my fight with death. To my chimerical vision, there was only a black but gentle demon that came and went, alternating with a white fairy who would insist on coming in on her head, growing larger and larger, and then dissolving. But the pathos and devotion in the story lost nothing in my blunt friend's telling. It was during a period of a long convalescence, however, that I came to know my humble ally as he really was, devoted to the point of abjectness. There were times when, for very shame at his goodness to me, I would beg him to go away to do something else. He would go, but before I had time to realize that I was not being ministered to, he would be back at my side, grinning and pottering just the same. He manufactured duties for the joy of performing them, he pretended to see desires in me that I never had, because he liked to pander to them. And when I became entirely exasperated and ripped out a good round oath, he chuckled with the remark, "'Dare now, you surely is getting well. Never did yeah, man anywhere nigh Jordan's show cuss like that.'" Why, I grew to love him. Love him. Oh, yes, I loved him as well. Oh, what am I saying? All human love and gratitude are damned poor things. Excuse me, gentlemen, this isn't a pleasant story. The truth is usually a nasty thing to stand. It was not six months after that that my friendship to Jube, which he had been at such great pains to win, was put to too severe a test. It was in the summertime again, and as business was slack, I had ridden over to see my friend Dr. Tom, I had spent a good part of the day there, and it was past four o'clock when I rode leisurely into Bradford. I was in a particularly joyous mood, and no premonition of the impending catastrophe oppressed me. No sense of sorrow, present or to come, forced itself upon me, even when I saw men hurrying through the almost deserted streets. When I got within sight of my home and saw a crowd surrounding it, I was only interested sufficiently to spur my horse into a jog-trot, which brought me up to the throng, when something in the sullen, settled horror in the men's faces gave me a sudden sick thrill. They whispered a word to me, and without a thought save for Annie, the girl who had been so surely growing into my heart, I leapt from the saddle and tore my way through the people to the house. It was Annie, 
poor girl, bruised and bleeding, her face and dress torn from struggling. They were gathered around her with white faces, and oh, with what terrible patience they were trying to gain from her fluttering lips the name of her murderer. They made way for me, and I knelt at her side. She was beyond my skill, and my will merged with theirs. One thought was in our minds. Who? I asked. Her eyes half opened. That black? She fell back into my arms, dead. We turned and looked at each other. The mother had broken down and was weeping, but the face of the father was like iron. It is enough, he said. Jube has disappeared. He went to the door and said to the expectant crowd, She is dead. I heard the angry roar without, swelling up like the noise of a flood, and then I heard the sudden movement of many feet as the men separated into searching parties. And laying the dead girl back on her porch, I took my rifle and went out to join them. As if by intuition the knowledge had passed among the men that Jew Benson had disappeared, and he, by common consent, was to be the object of our search. Fully a dozen of the citizens had seen him hastening toward the woods and noticed his skulking air, but as he had grinned in his old good-natured way, they had, at the time, thought nothing of it. Now, however, the diabolical reason of his slyness was apparent. He had been shrewd enough to disarm suspicion, and by now was far away. Even Mrs. Daly, who was sitting with a neighbor, had seen him stepping out by a back way, and had said with a laugh, I reckon that black rascal's running off somewhere. Oh, if she had only known. To the woods, to the woods! That was the cry. And away we went, each with a determination not to shoot, but to bring the culprit alive into town, and then to deal with him as his crime deserved. I cannot describe the feelings I experienced as I went out that night to beat the woods for this human tiger. My heart smoldered within me like a coal, and I went forward under the impulse of a will that was half my own, half some more malignant powers. My throat throbbed dryly, but water nor whiskey would have quenched my thirst. The thought has come to me since, that now I could interpret the panther's desire for blood and sympathize with it. But then I had thought nothing. I simply went forward and watched, watched with burning eyes, for a familiar form that I had looked for as often before with such different emotions. Luck, or ill luck, which you will, was with our party, and just as dawn was graying the sky, we came upon our quarry crouched in the corner of a fence. It was only half-light, and we might have passed, but my eyes had caught sight of him, and I raised the cry. We leveled our guns, and he rose and came toward us. I thought you weren't going to see me, he said sullenly. I didn't mean no harm. Harm? Some of the men took up the word with oaths. Others were ominously silent. We gathered around him like hungry beasts, and I began to see terror dawning on his eyes. He turned to me. I's mighty glad you's yeah, Doc, he said. You ain't going to let him whoop me. Whip you, you hound, I said. I'm going to see you hanged. And in the excess of my passion, I struck him full on the mouth. 
He made a motion as if to resent the blow against even such great odds, but controlled himself. Why, doctor? He exclaimed in the saddest voice I have ever heard. Why, doctor? I ain't stole nothing of yarn, and I was coming back. I only run off to see my gal, Lucy, over to the center. You lie, I said, and my hands were busy helping the others bind him upon a horse. Why did I do it? I don't know. A false education, I reckon. One false from the beginning. I saw his black face glooming there in half-light, and I could only think of him as a monster. It's tradition. At first I was told that the black man would catch me, and when I got over that, they taught me that the devil was black, and when I had recovered from the sickness of that belief, here were Jube and his fellows with faces of menacing blackness. There was only one conclusion. This black man stood for all the powers of evil, the result of whose machinations had been gathering in my mind from childhood up. But this has nothing to do with what happened. After firing a few shots to announce our capture, we rode back into town with Jube. The in-gathering parties from all directions met us as we made our way up to the house. All was very quiet and orderly. There was no doubt that it was as the papers would have said, a gathering of the best citizens. It was a gathering of stern, determined men bent on a terrible vengeance. We took Jube into the house, into the room where the corpse lay. At sight of it, he gave a scream like an animal's, and his face went the color of storm-blown water. This was enough to condemn him. We divined, rather than heard, his cry of, Miss Anne! Miss Anne! Oh my God, Doc, you don't think I done it? Hungry hands were ready. We hurried him out into the yard. A rope was ready. A tree was at hand. Well, that was the least of it, save that Hiram Daly stepped aside to let me be the first to pull upon the rope. It was lax at first. Then it tightened, and I felt the quivering, soft weight resist my muscles. Other hands joined, and Jube swung off his feet. No one was masked. We knew each other. Not even the culprit's face was covered, and the last I remember of him as he went into the air was a look of sad reproach that will remain with me until I meet him face to face again. We were tying the end of the rope to a tree where the dead man might hang as a warning to his fellows when a terrible cry chilled us to the marrow. Cut him down! Cut him down! He ain't guilty! We got the one! Cut him down, for God's sake! Here's the man! We found him hidden in the barn! Jube's brother Ben and another Negro came rushing toward us, half dragging, half carrying, a miserable-looking wretch between them. Someone cut the rope, and Jube dropped lifeless to the ground. Oh, my God, he's dead, he's dead, wailed the brother. But with blazing eyes, he brought his captive into the center of the group, and we saw in the full light the scratched face of Tom Skinner, the worst white ruffian in the town. But the face we saw was not, as we were accustomed to see it, merely smeared with dirt. It was blackened to imitate a Negro's. God forgive me. I could not wait to try to resuscitate Jube. 
I knew he was already past help. So I rushed into the house and to the dead girl's side. In the excitement, they had not yet washed or laid her out. Carefully, carefully, I searched underneath her broken fingernails. There was skin there. I took it out, the little curled pieces, and went with it to my office. There, determinedly, I examined it under a powerful glass and read my own doom. It was the skin of a white man, and in it were embedded strands of short brown hair or beard. How I went out to tell the waiting crowd I do not know, for something kept crying in my ears, blood guilty, blood guilty. The men went away stricken into silence and awe. The new prisoner attempted neither denial nor plea. When they were gone, I would have helped Ben carry his brother in, but he waved me away fiercely. You helped murder my brother. You'd it was his friend. Go away. Go away. I'll take him home myself. I could only respect his wish, and he and his comrade took up the dead man, and between them bore him up the street on which the sun was now shining full. I saw the few men who had not skulked indoors uncover as they passed, and I, I stood there between the two murdered ones, while all the while something in my ears kept crying, Blood guilty, blood guilty. The doctor's head dropped into his hands, and he sat for some time in silence, which was broken by neither of the men. Then he rose, saying, Gentlemen, that was my last lynching. And now, the mission of Mr. Scatters. It took something short of a revolution to wake up the sleepy little town of Miltonville. Through the slow, hot days, it drowsed along like a lazy dog, only half rousing now and then to snap at some flying rumor and relapsing at once into its pristine somnolence. It was not a dreamless sleep, however, that held the town in chains. It had its dreams, dreams of greatness, of wealth, of consequence, and of growth. Granted that there was no effort to realize these visions, they were yet there, and combined with the memory of a past that was not without credit, went far to give tone to its dormant spirit. It was a real spirit, too, the gallant Bourbon Street of the Old South, of Kentucky when she was most the daughter of Virginia, as was evidenced in the odd respect which all Miltonvillians, white and black alike, showed to Major Richardson in his house on the hill. He was part of the traditions of the place. It was shown in the conservatism of the old white families, and a certain stalwart, if reflected, self-respect in the older colored inhabitants. In all the days since the school had been founded and Mr. Duncan's marriage to the teacher had raised a brief ripple of excitement, these colored people had slumbered. They were still slumbering that hot August day, unmindful of the sensation that lay at their very doors, heedless of the portents that said as plain as preaching, Miltonville, the time is at hand. Awake! So it was that that afternoon there were only a few loungers, and these not very alert, 
about the station when the little train wheezed and puffed its way into it. It had been so long since anyone save those whom they knew had alighted at Miltonville that the loungers had lost faith, and with it curiosity. And now they scarcely changed their positions as the little engine stopped with a snort of disgust. But in an instant indifference had fled as the mist before the sun, and every eye on the platform was staring and white. It is the unexpected that always happens— and yet humanity never gets accustomed to it. The loafers, white and black, had assumed a sitting posture, and then they stood up. For from the cars there had alighted the wonder of a stranger, a Negro stranger, gorgeous of person and attire. He was dressed in a suit of black cloth. A long coat was buttoned close around his tall and robust form, He was dead black, from his shiny top hat to his not less shiny boots, and about him there was the indefinable air of distinction. He stood looking about the platform for a moment, and then stepped briskly and decisively toward the group that was staring at him with wide eyes. There was no hesitation in that step. He walked as a man walks who is not in the habit of being stopped, who has not known what it is to be told... Thus far shalt thou go, and no further. Can you tell me where I can find the residence of Mr. Isaac Jackson? He asked, sonorously, as he reached the stupefied loungers. His voice was deep and clear. Someone woke from his astonishment and offered to lead him thither, and together the two started for their destination, the stranger keeping up a running fire of comment on the way. Had his companion been a close observer and known anything about the matter, he would have found the newcomer's English painfully, unforgivably correct. A language should be like an easy shoe on a flexible foot. But to one unused to it, it proves rather a splint on a broken limb. The stranger stalked about in conversational splints until they arrived at Isaac Jackson's door. Then, giving his guide a dime, he dismissed him with a courtly bow and knocked. It was a good thing that Martha Ann Jackson had the innate politeness of her race well to the fore when she opened the door upon the radiant creature, or she would have given voice to the words that were in her heart. Good Lord, what is this? Is this the residence of Mr. Isaac Jackson? In the stranger's suavest voice. Yes, sir. He live here. May I see him? I desire to see him upon some business. He handed her his card, which she carefully turned upside down, glanced at it without understanding, and put it in her apron pocket, as she replied, He ain't in just now, but if you'll step in and wait, I'll send one of the chillin' after him. I thank you, madam. I thank you. I will come in and rest from the fatigue of my journey. I traveled a long way, and rest in such a pleasant and commodious abode as your own appears to be will prove very grateful to me. She had been half afraid to invite this resplendent figure into her humble house, but she felt distinctly flattered at his allusion to the house which she had helped Isaac to buy, and by the alacrity with which the stranger accepted her invitation. 
she ushered him into the front room, mentally thanking her stars that she had forced the reluctant Isaac to buy a bright new carpet a couple of months before. A child was dispatched to find and bring home the father, while Martha Ann, hastily slipping out of her work dress and into a starched calico, came in to keep her visitor company. His name proved to be Scatters, and he was a most entertaining and ingratiating man. It was evident that he had some important business with Isaac Jackson, but that it was mysterious was shown by the guarded way in which he occasionally hinted at it as he tapped the valise he carried and nodded knowingly. Time had never been when Martha Ann Jackson was so flustered. She was charmed and frightened and flattered. She could only leave Mr. Scatters long enough to give orders to her daughter, Lucy, to prepare such a supper as the household had never seen before. Then she returned to sit again at his feet and listen to his words of wisdom. The supper progressed apace, and the savor of it was already in the stranger's nostrils. Upon this he grew eloquent and was about to divulge his secret to the hungry-eyed woman when the trampling of Isaac's boots upon the walk told him that he had only a little while longer to contain himself and at the same time to wait for the fragrant supper. Now, it is seldom that a man is so well impressed with a smooth-tongued stranger as is his wife. Usually his hard-headedness puts him on the defensive against the blandishments of the man who has won his better half's favor— and however honest the semi-fortunate individual may be, he despises him for his attainments. But it was not so in this case. Isaac had hardly entered the house and received his visitor's warm handclasp before he became captive to his charm. Business? Business? No. His guest had been traveling, and he must be both tired and hungry. Isaac would hear of no business until they had eaten— then over a pipe, if the gentlemen smoked, they might talk at their ease. Mr. Scatters demurred, but in fact nothing could have pleased him better, and the open smile with which he dropped into his place at the table was very genuine and heartfelt. Genuine, too, were his praises of Lucy's cooking, of her flaky biscuits and mealy potatoes. He was pleased all through, and he did not hesitate to say so. It was a beaming group that finally rose heavily laden from the supper table. Over a social pipe a little later, Isaac Jackson heard the story that made his eyes bulge with interest and his heart throb with eagerness. Mr. Scatters began, tapping his host's breast and looking at him fixedly. You had a brother some years ago named John. It was more like an accusation than a question. Yes, sir. I had a brother, John. Uh-huh, and that brother migrated to the West Indies. Yes, sir. He went out to some of them outlandish places. Hold on, sir, hold on. I am a West Indian myself. I don't mean no offense, excepting that John always was of a roving disposition. Very well. You know no more about your brother after his departure for the West Indies? No, sir. Well, it is my mission to tell you the rest of the story. Your brother landed at Cuba, and after working about some years and living frugally, he went into the coffee business, in which he became rich. Rich? Rich, sir. Why, bless my soul, 
Who'd ever thought that of John? Why, sir, I'm surely proud you hit. Why don't he come home and visit a body? Ah, why? said Mr. Scatters dramatically. Now comes the most painful part of my mission. In the midst of life, we are in death. Mr. Scatters sighed. Isaac sighed and wiped his eyes. Two years ago, your brother departed this life. Was he saved? Isaac asked in a choked voice. Scatters gave him one startled glance and then answered hastily. I am happy to say that he was. Poor John. He gone and me left. Even in the midst of our sorrows, however, there is always a ray of light. Your brother remembered you in his will. Remembered me? Remembered you. And as one of the executors of his estate? Mr. Scatters rose and went softly over to his valise, from which he took a large square package. He came back with it, holding it as if it were something sacred. As one of the executors of his estate, which is now settled, I was commissioned to bring you this. He tapped the package. This package, sealed, as you see, with the seal of Cuba, contains $5,000 in notes and bonds. Isaac gasped and reached for the bundle, but it was withdrawn. I am, however, not to deliver it to you yet. There are certain formalities which my country demands to be gone through with, after which I deliver my message and return to the fairest of lands, to the gem of the Antilles. Let me congratulate you, Mr. Jackson, upon your good fortune. Isaac yielded up his hand mechanically. He was dazed by the vision of this sudden wealth. Five thousand dollars, he repeated. Yes, sir. Five thousand dollars. It is a goodly sum, and in the meantime, until court convenes, I wish you to recommend some safe place in which to put this money, as I do not feel secure with it about my person, nor would it be secure if it were known to be in your house. I reckon Albert Matthews' grocery would be the safest place for it. He's got one of them iron safes. The very place. Let us go there at once, and after that I will not encroach upon your hospitality longer, but attempt to find a hotel. Hotel nothing, said Isaac emphatically. If my house ain't too common, you'll stay right there on twelve court sets. This is very kind of you, Mr. Jackson, but really I couldn't think of being such a charge upon you and your good wife. Tain't no charge on us. We'll be glad to have you. Folks here in Milton View has little enough company. The Lord knows. Isaac spoke the truth, and it was as much the knowledge that he would be the very envy of all the town as his gratitude to Scatters that prompted him to prevail upon his visitor to stay. Scatters was finally persuaded, and the men only paused long enough in the house to tell the curiosity-eaten Martha Ann the news, and then started for Albert Matthews' store. Scatters carried the precious package, and Isaac was armed with an old shotgun, lest anyone should suspect their treasure and attack them. Five thousand dollars was not to be carelessly handled. As soon as the men were gone, Martha Ann started upon her rounds, and her proud tongue did for the women portion of Miltonville what the visit to Matthew's store did for the men.' 
Did Mrs. So-and-so remember Brother John? Indeed she did. And when the story was told, it was a, Well, 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 he used to be an old beau of mine. Martha Ann found no less than twenty women of her acquaintance for whom her brother John seemed to have entertained tender feelings. The corner grocery store kept by Albert Matthews was the general gathering place for the colored male population of the town. It was a small, one-roomed building, almost filled with barrels, boxes, and casks. Pride, as well as necessity, had prompted Isaac to go to the grocery store just at this time, when it would be quite the fullest of men. He had not calculated wrongly when he reckoned upon the sensation that would be made by his entrance with the distinguished-looking stranger. The excitement was all the most hungry could have wished for. The men stared at Jackson and his companion with wide-open eyes. They left off chewing tobacco and telling tales. A half-dozen of them forgot to avail themselves of the joy of spitting, and Albert Matthews, the proprietor, a weazened little brown-skinned man, forgot to lay his hand upon the scale in weighing out a pound of sugar. With a humility that was false on the very face of it, Isaac introduced his guest to the grocer, and the three of them went off together mysteriously into a corner. The matter was duly explained, and the object of the visit told. Matthews burned with envy of his neighbor's good fortune. I do reckon, Mr. Scatters, dat we better not let the other folks in de store know anything about dis yah business of ours. I got to be sponsible for dat money, and I don't want to take no chances. You are perfectly right, sir, perfectly right. You are responsible not only for the money itself, but for the integrity of this seal which means the dignity of government. Matthews looked sufficiently impressed, and together they all went their way among the barrels and boxes to the corner where the little safe stood. With many turnings and twistings, the door opened, the package enclosed, and the safe shut again. Then they all rose solemnly and went behind the counter to sample something that Matthews had. This was necessary as a climax, for they had performed not a mere deed, but a ceremonial. Of course, you'll say nothing about this matter at all, Mr. Matthews, said Scatters, thereby ensuring publicity to his affair. There were a few introductions as the men passed out, but hardly had their backs turned when a perfect storm of comment and inquiry broke about the grocer's head. So it came to pass that with many mysterious nods and head shakings, Matthews first hinted at and then told the story. For the first few minutes, the men could scarcely believe what they had heard. It was so utterly unprecedented. Then it dawned upon them that it might be so, and discussion and argument ran rife for the next hour. The story flew like wildfire, there being three things in the world which interest all sorts and conditions of men alike, great wealth, great beauty, and great love. Whenever Mr. Scatters appeared, he was greeted with deference and admiration. Any man who had come from Cuba on such an errand to their fellow townsmen deserved all honor and respect. His charming manner confirmed, too, all that preconceived notions had said of him. He became a social favorite. It began with Mr. and Mrs. Duncan's calling upon him, then followed Alonzo Taft, 
and when the former, too, gave a reception for the visitor, his position was assured. Miltonville had not yet arisen to the dignity of having a literary society. He now founded one and opened it himself with an address so beautiful, so eloquent and moving, that Mr. Duncan bobbed his head dizzy in acquiescence, and Aunt Hannah Payne thought she was in church and shouted for joy. The little town had awakened from its long post-bellum slumber and accepted with eagerness the upward impulse given it. It stood aside and looked on with something like adoration when Mr. Scatters and Mrs. Duncan met and talked of ineffable things, things far above the ken of the average mortal. When Mr. Scatters found that his mission was known, he gave up further attempts at concealing it and talked freely about the matter. He expatiated at length upon the responsibility that devolved upon him and his desire to discharge it, and he spoke glowingly of the great government whose power was represented by the seal which held the package of bonds. Not for one day would he stay away from his beloved Cuba if it were not that the seal had to be broken in the presence of the proper authorities. So, however reluctant he might be to stay, it was not for him to shirk his task. He must wait for the sitting of court. Meanwhile, the Jacksons lived in an atmosphere of glory. The womenfolk purchased new dresses, and Isaac got a new wagon on the strength of their good fortune. It was nothing to what they dreamed of doing when they had the money positively in hand. Mr. Scatters still remained their guest, and they were proud of it. What pleased them most was that their distinguished visitors seemed to not look down upon, but rather to be pleased with their homely fare. Isaac had further cause for pleasure when his guest came to him later with a great show of frank confidence to request the loan of fifty dollars. I should not think of asking even this small favor of you, but that I have only Cuban money with me, and I knew you would feel distressed if you knew that I went to the trouble of sending this money away for exchange on account of so small a sum. This was undoubtedly a mark of special confidence. It suddenly made Isaac feel as if the grand creature had accepted and labeled him as a brother and an equal. He hastened to Matthew's safe, where he kept his own earnings, for the grocer was banker as well. With reverent hands, they put aside the package of bonds and together counted out the required half a hundred dollars. In a little while, Mr. Scatter's long, graceful fingers had closed over it. Mr. Jackson's cup of joy was now full. It had but one bitter drop to Mar's sweetness. That was the friendship that had sprung up between the Cuban and Mr. Duncan. They frequently exchanged visits and sat long together engaged in conversation from which Isaac was excluded. This galled him. He felt that he had a sort of proprietary interest in his guest, and any infringement of this property right he looked upon with distinct disfavor, so that it was no pleasant countenance that he greeted Mr. Durkin when he called on a certain night. Well, Mr. Scatters is gone out, he said, as the old man entered and deposited his hat on the floor. That's all right, Isaac, said Mr. Duncan slowly. I didn't come to see the gentleman. I come to see you. The cloud somewhat lifted from Isaac's brow. Mr. Duncan was a man of importance, and it made a deal of difference whom he was visiting. He seemed a little bit embarrassed, however, as to how to open conversation. He hummed and hawed and was visibly uneasy. 
He tried to descant upon the weather, but the subject failed him. Finally, with an effort, he hitched his chair nearer to his hosts and said in a low voice, Ike, I reckon ye has de confidence of Mr. Scattis? Ah, has, was the proud reply. Ah, has. Hmm. Well, uh, well, has ye ever loaned him any money? Isaac was aghast. Such impertinence. Mr. Duncan, he began, I consider. Hold on, Ike, broke in Duncan, laying a soothing hand on the other's knee. Don't get on your high horse. Dis yah's an important matter. I ain't got nothing to say. He ain't never told you about having nothing but Cuban money on him? Isaac started. I see he have. He told me the same thing. The two men sat staring suspiciously into each other's faces. He got a hundred and fifty dollars for me, said Duncan. I let him have fifty, added Jackson weakly. He got a hundred and fifty dollars from Thews. That's how I come to get spicious. He told him the same story. Again, that pregnant look flashed between them, and they both rose and went out of the house. They hurried down to Matthew's grocery. The owner was waiting for them there. There was solemnity, but no hesitation, in the manner with which they now went to the safe. They took out the package hastily and with ruthless hands. This was no ceremonial now. The seal had no longer any fear for them. They tore it off. They tore the wrappers. Then paper, neatly folded paper. More wrapping paper, newspapers. Nothing more. Of bills or bonds, nothing. With the debris of the mysterious parcel scattered about their feet, they stood up and looked at each other. I never did believe in furriners know-how, said Mr. Duncan sadly. But he knowed all about my brother John. And he surely did make mighty fine speeches. Maybe we missed the money. This from the grocer. Together they went over the papers again, with the same result. Do you know where he went tonight, Ike? No. Then I reckon we seed the last of him. But he left his valise. Yes, and he left this, said Duncan sternly, pointing to the paper on the floor. He surely is mighty careless of his valuables. Let's go get the constable, said the practical Matthews. They did, though they felt that it would be unavailing. The constable came and waited at Jackson's house. They had been there about half an hour, talking the matter over. Then what was their surprise to hear Mr. Scatter's step coming jauntily up the walk? A sudden panic of terror and shame seized them. It was as if they had wronged him. Suppose, after all, everything should come to right, and he should be able to explain. They sat and trembled until he entered. Then the constable told him his mission. Mr. Scatter's was surprised. He was hurt. Indeed, he was distinctly grieved that his friends had had so little confidence in him. Had he been to them anything but a gentleman, a friend, and an honest man? Had he not come a long distance from his home to do one of them a favor? They hung their heads. Martha Ann, who was listening at the door, was sobbing audibly. What had he done thus to be humiliated? 
He saw the effect of his words and pursued it. Had he not left in the care of one of their own number security for his integrity in the shape of the bonds? The effect of his words was magical. Every head went up and three pairs of flashing eyes were bent upon him. He saw and knew that they knew. He had not thought that they would dare to violate the seal around which he had woven such a halo. He saw that all was over. He saw that all was over. And throwing up his hands with a despairing gesture, he bowed graciously and left the room with the constable. All Miltonville had their story next day and waited no less eagerly than before for the setting of caught. To the anger and chagrin of Miltonvillians, Fox Run had the honor and distinction of being the county seat, and thither they must go to the sessions. But never did they so forget their animosities as on the day set for the trial of Scatters. They overlooked the pride of the Fox Runners, their cupidity and their vaunting arrogance. They ignored the indignity of showing interest in anything that took place in that village, and went in force, eager, anxious, and curious. A horse, a foot, by ox cart, by mule wagon, white, black, high, low, old and young, of both sexes, invaded Fox Run and swelled the crowd of onlookers until, with pity for the very anxiety of the people, the humane judge decided to discard the now inadequate courtroom and hold the sessions on the village green. Here an impromptu bar was set up, and over against it were ranged the benches, chairs, and campstools of the spectators. Every man of prominence in the county was present. Major Richardson, though now retired, occupied a distinguished position within the bar. Old Captain Howard shook hands familiarly with the judge and nodded to the assembly as though he himself had invited them all to be present. Former Judge Durbin sat with his successor on the bench. Court opened, and the first case was called. It gained but passing attention. There was bigger game to be stalked. A hog-stealing case fared a little better on account of the intimateness of the crime involved, but nothing was received with such awed silence as the case of the state against Joseph Scatters. The charge was obtaining money under false pretenses, and the plea not guilty. The witnesses were called and their testimony taken. Mr. Scatters was called to testify in his own defense, but refused to do so. The prosecution stated its case and proceeded to sum up the depositions of the witnesses. As there was no attorney for the defense, the state's attorney delivered a short speech in which the guilt of the defendant was plainly set forth. It was as clear as day. Things looked very dark for Mr. Scatters of Cuba. As the lawyer sat down and ere the case could be given to the jury, he rose and asked permission of the court to say a few words. This was granted him. He stood up among them, a magnificent, strong black figure. His eyes swept the assembly, jury, judge, and spectators, with a look half amusement, half defiance. I have pleaded not guilty. He began in a low, distinct voice that could be heard in every part of the enclosure. And I am not guilty of the spirit which is charged against me, however near the letter may touch me. I did use certain knowledge that I possessed and the seal which I happened to have from an old government position, 
to defraud, that is the word, if you will, to defraud these men out of the price of their vanity and their cupidity. But it was not a long premeditated thing. I was within a few miles of your town before the idea occurred to me. I was in straits. I stepped from the brink of great poverty into the midst of what you please to deem a greater crime. The court held its breath. No such audacity had ever been witnessed in the life of Fox Run. Scatters went on, warming to his subject as he progressed. He was eloquent and he was pleasing. A smile flickered over the face of Major Richardson and was reflected in the features of many others as the speaker burst forth. Gentlemen, I maintain that instead of imprisoning me, you should thank me for what I have done. Have I not taught your community a lesson? Have I not put a check upon their credulity and made them wary of unheralding strangers? He had. There was no disputing that. The judge himself was smiling, and the jurymen were nodding at each other. Scatters had not yet played his trump card. He saw that the time was ripe. Straightening his form and raising his great voice, he cried, Gentlemen, I am guilty according to the letter of the law, but from that I appeal to the men who make and have made the law. From the hard detail of this new day, I appeal to the chivalry of the old South, which has been told in story and song in song. From men of vindictiveness, I appeal to men of mercy. From plebeians to aristocrats, by the memory of the sacred names of the Richardsons. The mayor sat bolt upright and dropped his snuffbox. The Durbins. The ex-judge couldn't for his life get his pince-nez on. The Howards. The captain openly rubbed his hands. To the memories that those names call up, I appeal, and to the living and honorable bearers of them present, and to you, gentlemen of the jury, the lives of whose fathers went to purchase this dark and bloody ground, I appeal from the accusations of these men, who are not my victims, not my dupes, but their own. There was a hush when he was done. The judge read the charge to the jury, and it was favorable, very. And, well, Scatters had taught the darkies a lesson. He had spoken of their families and their traditions. He knew their names, and, oh well, he was a good fellow after all. What was the use? The jury did not leave their seats, and the verdict was acquittal. Scatters thanked the court and started away, but he met three ominous-looking pairs of eyes, and a crowd composed of angry Negroes was flocking toward the edge of the green. He came back. I think I had better wait until the excitement subsides, he said to Major Richardson. No need of that, sir, no need of that. Here, Jim, he called to his coachman. Take Mr. Scatters wherever he wants to go, and remember, I shall hold you responsible for his safety. Yes, sir, said Jim. A thousand thanks, Major, said the man with the mission. Not at all, sir. By the way, that was a very fine effort of yours this afternoon. I was greatly moved by it. If you give me your address, I'll send you a history of our family, sir, 
from the time they left Virginia and before. Mr. Scatters gave him the address and smiled at the three enemies who still waited on the edge of the green. To the station, he said to the driver. And that's our stories for this evening. I hope you enjoyed The Lynching of Jube Benson and The Mission of Mr. Scatters by Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Thank you for listening. I'm Jennifer March, and this is not your mother's story time.